Natalie Metza Garcia and welcome to the Floating Cities Show. Here, you learn about the latest floating projects, developments, houses, buildings, neighborhoods, floating city plans, and the regulations, zones, and jurisdictions that enable them all across the world. You'll hear directly from the makers, the architects, designers, developers, engineers, and even the regulators that make floating projects possible. Come join me while together with Sofia, we help you navigate the complexity of these new waters. Hello, everyone. I'm here with Richard Kutz from Baca Architects, who's going to talk, us today, talk to us today about his amphibious and floating projects. How are you, Richard? Hello, all. Many thanks for, for joining me on, on this call. So thank you very much for, for inviting me. Thanks for having No, thanks for, no, thanks for being here. So I, I really have a deep look at your website and I'm very impressed with the work that Baca does. So can you talk to us a bit about what your firm does and what is your approach to, well, what you bring to the designs that other firms don't? Well, certainly. So for the last decade or so, we've, we've been working in the field of, of flood mitigation. And that was born out of um, a project which we, we initially looked at as a competition. It was in Manchester. And we were, we were just students at the time. And we thought, well, how, how do we differentiate ourselves from the competition? So it's on the River Irwell in Manchester. Uh, the site would have been very heavily influenced by flooding. So we thought, well, most people will, will build a, a flood defence around the building, put it up on a podium and build something quite traditional on top. So we thought, well, that's not really going to differentiate ourselves from, from our market. Mm -hmm. So we thought, well, what might happen if we allow water in? So a lot of our work is a, a non-defensive approach to flooding. So that sort of works on the premise that, that governments can't afford to keep maintaining very expensive flood defences. And it also works very much with landscape. And in the event that you can't uh, place a building somewhere safely within the landscape, then architecture, or as we call it, aquitecture, <laughs> steps in and, and, and takes over. So the scheme in, in uh, Manchester, it started off with, well, what happens to your car in a flood? And where do your electrics go? And how do I get safely to and from my front door? And how does that work if, if I'm a woman with, with a pushchair or if I'm a person with a, with a wheelchair? And so that started to, to raise questions. And we realized we, we, we couldn't answer that at, at a, a building level. So we started to do sketches to say, well, well could we solve that at, at a community level? And before we knew it, we, we developed a, what we call the concept city, where uh, my colleague and I, we, we, we drew a, a city for 40,000 people. And we realized that you needed to resolve this at a, at a policy level, at a community level, and eventually at a building level. Yeah. And you, you mentioned flooding, but what's interesting now is, is during uh, the last sort of decade, you know, the, the discussions about climate change and the frequency of flooding is in everybody's minds. Yeah. And probably in the last 10 years, there's, there's been a major flood event somewhere in the world. I mean, 29 out of the 39 
largest cities, so that's populations of over 5 million, are next to or, or, or are within 100 kilometers of the coast. Yeah. So all of those major conurbations, some of those very wealthy cities, some of those developing and some of those struggling. And as we saw recently uh, in Nepal and India, you know, there's, there's, there's very severe floods affecting everybody. So our premise is how can we create safe, uh, beautiful places to live? Because ultimately I'm, I'm an architect and an urban designer. How do, we, how do we deal with having to build new homes? I mean, I was talking with, with, with a colleague um, yesterday who, who was very proud that, that he just bought himself a new electric car. But what he failed to realize is that he was paving over his front garden to enable the car to be charged against his property. Now, the consequence of that is if everybody paves over their gardens in, in suburbia or, or urban cities, is uh, an increase in surface water flooding. So yeah. our approach is holistic. Where do we make space for water? How do we get landscaping within our development so that urban heat island effect, people who look out of their windows, if you're trapped in a small flat during COVID, you've got something beautiful to look at. And then finally, can we make something which is warm, comfortable and, and flood resilient? Yeah. So... What is the difference between an amphibious building and a traditional floating building? I say traditional, though the field is still developing, but what is the difference between these two types of approaches? So at, at the most basic level, the, a floating home sits in the water course. So whether it's a, a dock, a canal system or a river, whereas an amphibious house is actually land bound. It sits in from the water course. Mm -hmm. and for all intents and purposes, during its everyday life, it's it's a normal home. Now, the benefit of, of that property means that the ground level, so your where your typically your your lounge, your your kitchen area, that's close to the garden. But below the property, it, it's like a, a a basement, and we call it the sort of the displacement element, and that allows the building to float through Archimedes' principle. So, in the event of a flood. The ground slowly swells with water that provides buoyancy to the building and the building gently raises, keeping its occupants at a safe distance. And it, probably the next question you're going to ask me, well, well how do the utilities work? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so people go, well, that, that's great. But how do I have electricity? How do my toilets flush? So we have a thing called elephant connections and it's very much like, you know, a trunk of an elephant. Okay. Um, and they sit between the building and the dock that it sits in. So it sits within a little mini dock. And when the building rises, the, the cables are designed to be sufficiently long enough to stretch. Okay, like an elephant uh, yeah. thing. Okay. So would this happen at, does this happen at the level of the house or the neighborhood? Oh, so, we, well, that, that's a very good question. It, it can happen at both. So the amphibious house, which probably most people know us for, which is the one in Buckinghamshire in England, that that's an individual property. So that is individually connected to the foul sewage, the water and electricity. Uh, in Boston, in the Hudson Harbour there, we're looking with, with colleagues called Water Studio in the Netherlands. We're looking at developing a floating neighbourhood. And those properties are clustered in groups of about 20 units. And so it's just a bigger version of the amphibious unit. 
This and again, they, they, they can rise and fall about seven metres with the tidal um, water range with, within the, let's say, within the, uh, within the harbour, within the harbour there. That's a lot. That's really, yeah, you can, you can withstand almost all levels of floating with seven metres, really. Yeah. That's, so I, I was born in a city in the north coast of Colombia that suffers from extreme flooding because the, sea, the city didn't have an underwater sewage system or for mm -hmm. when it rains, sorry, not sewage, but for when it rains, right? So my memories from when I was a girl is the whole city floated and mattresses and things just being brushed away. So I'm very happy to see how all these approaches are emerging for new cities and new developments to not have to come up with ways to live against nature, but with nature, right? I, I, and, I and I think that that's one of the important um, strategies that, that humans now need to, to embrace. We've sort of tried to uh, almost control nature but now we need to work with nature and respect it more uh, our future is dependent on how well and how healthy our planet is and we need to understand its natural processes i say a little, one of the sort of main mantras of, of our work is, is making space for water and with with the students that are you know that i teach or, or within the members of staff within our office Urban planning doesn't normally address water initially. Yeah. You know, a, a developer will say, what's my area in terms of acres or hectares? How many houses can I get on there? And, and, and since the 50s, it's mainly been how much space do we need for parking and for roads? Yes. And then perhaps, you know, at the turn of the century, we started to look at solar design. So roofs orientated south. But, you know, things like, space for water so whether it's sustainable urban drainage they've always been pushed to the extremities of a property or, or, or a site so we sort of say you know embrace water as, as, as a friend rather than a foe mm -hmm. and and to design that actually within the heart of of the development and you can use that then um so people get wonderful views into what would be a park area that park can double as storm storage during you know flashy floods or, or uh, very heavy downpours of, of rainfall so it can provide the storage okay and you know you can use those for, for, for parks for children you know and but it, it gives you space as well between properties so we need to have, it's a more of a multifunctional approach rather than saying this area is specifically for this or for growing crops there's a lot of human beings on this planet and we need to preserve those green areas outside of our cities. So within those dense conurbations, we need to, you know, on our buildings, you know, either bioclimatic design, so greening the facade, slowing the water down, getting into the natural environment, using that green space to help with urban heat island effects. But it can also be used as well to filter the water and to clean it. So if you have a, a utility company who are adopting the swales, the parks, those can be natural filtration systems, slowing water down, getting into the, the built environment. And then ultimately it's clean water when it reaches the, you know, the pumping station or the treatment. So again, it's all of these overlapping systems 
and and we live in an ecosystem mother nature doesn't work as this is my small spot and this is yours we have to we have to work together and i think as architects and urban designers as policy makers as engineers as landscape designers as we need to start to understand each other's disciplines and as we start to overlap as i say we'll work more in tune with nature and and equally create some really wonderful and sustainable places to live you could have not said it better so i'm interested about the landscaping aspect uh, of the amphibious homes so how is the landscaping similar or different from traditional homes on land do you have to consider do you have to plant plants that are different and that can withstand large amounts of water or maybe if uh, you receive flooding from the ocean if well that, that sounds more like a tsunami but if it's salt water then you have to use mangroves instead of a I don't know oak trees so the landscaping what different factors come into play that with traditional building on land don't no indeed so it depends where you are in the world so if you were in somewhere like New Orleans you the the depletion of the mangroves has been a huge uh discussion point uh in terms of how weather and hurricanes are controlled in the Gulf of Mexico uh in the river Thames we're dealing with freshwater but if you go move out to a more a coastal situation then you'll also need to deal with with saltwater so at the amphibious house one of the the interventions that we've done there so if you consider sort of how rice fields are designed in in, in sort of india yeah. so in 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 the sort of plateaus we've created a series of plateaus in front of the amphibious house and that's twofold one we have different planting regimes at different levels so that's dependent on mm-hmm. how frequent the site will flood and we have more hardy plants in the areas where it will be inundated with water more frequently but the reason for the terraces and it's similar to a, a much larger scheme which we've designed for the city of Paris whereby these terraces act as early warning systems so instead of for example building a flood defense and the water rises slowly overtops and and surprises people behind yeah. the idea with the plateaus is that as as a homeowner you get to see that plateau 1 or 2 are filled with water yeah. and by the time it gets to plateau 3 because it's designed to be linked to the the wet dock of the amphibious house the amphibious house should start to rise by the time flood plateau 3 has been inundated with water so it also becomes an early warning system yeah. i mean we we kind of i mean it's it's interesting because for example there are lots of other sort of very clever landscape interventions that you could do so for example in st mark's square in in venice they have little isthmus so most people think that the square is flat but actually there's these little raised ridges that run through the square so when the when it starts to flood at a very low level it leaves these slightly elevated footpaths that weave their way through the site so depending on whether it's you know it's a neighborhood a square or a city there's lots of very subtle interventions we can do whether they're hard landscaping so to create safe routes in and out of the city we can create landscaping to to absorb the water and actually create something uh, attractive which will also then absorb and and slow and contain um so there's lots of different strategies but those working together with the architecture that's the holistic solution that w- which we need if we're going to improve 
our response and our resilience to, to, to major floods. And that's what I've seen that you bring to the table as DACA architects, right? Cool. No, exactly. I mean, we've, we've been working in the field now for just over 10 years. And I mean, I'm, I'm calling today from, from my home studio and you'll see a lot of the drawings in the background, which were, which were <laughs> draw, drawn very quickly during lockdown. But <laughs> I know it. Cool office, by the way. No, thank you very much. No, it's to say we, as, as a studio, as I say, a bit of an aside, we, all of our architects love to draw. And so instead of being entirely dependent on computers, we're going back to some of the more natural skills because there's a more of a there's a, an immediacy there and when you're sat with with clients or students or colleagues being able to draw and articulate your vision through a drawing is, is, is a very effective and efficient way of working it's really telling that you mentioned going back to 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 ways in which things were done before and how this can work sometimes better than current practices in some aspects, because when you were talking about the, the little hills or the, the different tier levels of the, the landscaping of the flood system uses, I was thinking about how an indigenous community used to manage floods in the north part of Colombia about 500 years ago, and they were able to, to grow their crops in the and, and use the natural rhythms of the flood season and the the dry season in favor of their crops and they had no problem but the farmers who live there right now don't have the same relation with water so when the area gets flooded they have no business instead of living with it as it was used uh, as they used to do in the past so yeah i I, I like that. And I've seen some of the drawings that you have on the website and I'm very, yeah, I can see the, so I want to talk about the floating sanctuary, which is one of the, the projects that I saw that called the most, called my attention the most. So can you tell us a bit about the floating sanctuary? Why the shape? What's, uh, yeah, what is this project? So interestingly, so uh, okay. so so here is the actual original <laughs> concept nice. drawing. Uh huh. This is the original one. Yes. Yeah, so let me just. I will. I will. I will liberate it from my my collection. But what you'll see in my my studio, there's lots of bulldog clips, okay. and within here are all all of the original sketches and designs. So so this is the this is the original. The original the one, drawing. That's the one that's going to be sold on eBay <laughs> in 20 years from now. <laughs> exactly. And the other one which are in here, the, the original sketches for the underwater discovery center in Australia. Yeah. So here we go. This is just some of these. So these are, these are genuine drawings from... Oh, wow. So there we go. No, so talking about the, so the, so the origins of, of the water lily. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so this so this is the original sketch of of the water lily, and this was born out of some some quite unusual site constraints. So originally, the design for the lake was to have almost like a, a daisy chain or a necklace of lodges that went around the lake, but for one reason or another, the, the southern part of the lake there were some serious site constraints. 
So we just weren't able to provide those sort of houses with the area. But the client needed a critical mass of development to, 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 to pay for the whole scheme. So we looked at, well, how, how could we blend all of these units together? And we looked at the, the sun path, we looked at, at flows, we looked at equally, we needed something that was very close and low to the water, but would have a fantastic silhouette. And we did lots of different, thank you. And it, and it, and it has lots of just different, um, and it's gonna be viewed from many different directions. And also, um, it's not far from an airfield, so people will fly over the site. Oh, cool. Okay. So we just started to have a look at just different ways and different shapes. And the first generation were, were really quite conservative. And as, as an aside, <laughs> and as, and then as a side that the client just saw the sketch of the water lily and had just said, I love it. Cool. Um, so he he gave us the confidence to develop it further and and literally from when we drew it to when it was published it's now circulated all over the globe and it's i say it's one of the most visited pages on our our website and and it's probably how you came to find us as well yeah so i actually came to find you because i was living in the uk for like three four years when i was doing the, my phd and I receive lots of alerts of what's going on in the space and BACA Architects, BACA Architects, BACA Architects was always there, but I was busy. So I didn't really have time to focus on anything that wasn't a PhD, but I, I knew, I was so happy when I saw that there was a amphibious or flowing work being done in the UK because I wasn't aware before you. So yeah, I cool, nice. And how about the underwater ocean discovery? Because this is a different approach. It's not floating, it's not amphibious, it's underwater. So can you talk to us, can you tell us a bit also about the discovery center and well, how would it be built basically? Well, we're very lucky to be working with, with some of the, the best uh, engineers in the world and also some uh, sub uh, marine engineers and so they, they came in to, to visit us at our office and we were just talking about projects and, and potential collaborations and they identified an opportunity in, in Australia uh, where, where we might be able to collaborate together. So the site itself is, is in an area called Bustleton so the nearest city to that is Perth so it's on the west coast of Australia so it's, it's exposed very much to all of the sea to, to the west of of Australia and they have a jetty there which is uh, it's a Victorian era jetty it's about two kilometers oh. long oh, which wow. just goes out to sea and at the end of the jetty is um, is the Bustleton essentially it's a marine ecology and education center at the end of the pier and so it's an exhibition space but also provides education to children and also a, a monitor, monitoring station for uh, sea life uh, within the ocean floor. And they wanted to create a, a visitor attraction, but also an education center, which would act as an anchor point at the end of the pier. Uh, visitors could then go and then take the journey from surface level slowly to underwater. Mm -hmm. And then at, at 
ocean floor level to see this wonderful panoramic view of uh, the coral and of the sea life uh, at the ocean floor. So we were uh, very much involved in that. We, we developed the, the concept design. Uh, they're just in the process of developing the construction drawings for that. But it's the same team that, that delivered the under restaurant. So Snowetta's design in, uh, in Norway. One of, the, one of the things that I like the most about the underwater center is that it is, it has an aquarium, but it's not the aquarium that kidnaps the animals and puts them in a water jail. It's an aquarium where people go and visit the species who live there in their real, just living their normal life. So it's, it's, it's almost like an inverse because it's the humans <laughs> that, are, yeah. that, are, that are contained with inside the vessel. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's going to be really quite inspiring, particularly for, for young children as well, because I think they're going to organize it so that children can almost camp and sleep within the, so they'll, they'll have weekends where children can go and do a sleepover mm-hmm. on the ocean floor. So if, if you're, uh-huh. you know, if you're a child, you know, in you know, know. Seven, six, seven, eight years of age, and some of your early memories are you know a stingray floating through the water <laughs> wow. in a you know a beautiful blue space, and those teachers explaining to you how sensitive and how how we must care for the ocean. Um, that will be very inspiring because we need we do need the next generation of of humans to to take care of this planet. Um, so yeah, the the design of that is a whale. Was in, well, it's we call it the Cetacean, which is a oh. mythical, myth, mythical ocean beast. Um, the design itself went went through a number of guises. It it started off as as a rock. Oh, okay. So the original design was was a rock at the end of the pier. Okay. And then then we were asked to consider designing it as a pirate ship. <laughs> okay um and then through the consensus with the people who are running uh the, the the visitor center and the contractors and the designers and and the government the idea which everybody settled on was was the set of scene and i think the the eye which looks out over the ocean where as you spiral down through the property you you go from daylight down through the different stratas of the ocean is a very compelling vision, and I think it's what a lot of people bought into. And the city also wanted something very iconic, very memorable. And as I say, if you just type in "back architects whale" into the <laughs> internet, I, I, I don't think you'll you'll find anything else. So yeah, so if if, if you type that into the internet, you'll, you know, you you'll it, it kind of monopolizes all of the Google searches. But I think that means we, as a designer, have have, have done a, a a good job. The, the client wanted something that was recognisable, something which was memorable. We didn't want to do anything which was a, a cliche or, or pastiche. I, and, and we really enjoyed designing it. I say that, that was designed on my kitchen table during COVID. And Ooh, wow, I want my, my break time to be as productive as yours. <laughs> It, show, it shows you the sort of the, the wonders now of, of technology whereby we can have engineers in the other hemisphere doing bathymetric surveys. We can do LIDAR data. 
you know, we can get that digital information. We can take that onto our computers here in the UK, in, in our offices in London. We can build our building information management systems. Uh, we did a lot of presentations via Zoom, Teams, and the original sketch for the set of scene was drawn on my, say, kitchen table, photographed in WhatsApp, sent oh, wow. to sent to my colleague in Australia who was presenting, who then just literally within 30 seconds was able to share the image on a on a video conferencing call and the client bought into that. And that's how we've been working. It's it's strange. We, you know, we everybody feels that you have to be in the office space. But I think digital technology allows us to do a great deal without having to build up that massive carbon footprint of traveling around the world. Uh, you know, I haven't had to come and visit you in, in Colombia, but we, we're chatting to each other as if we're on the other side of the table. Yeah. And yesterday, you know, I joined a conversation which was run by UN Habitat. So it was looking at the global housing crisis. Uh, it was an NGO for the United Nations. And, you know, we had people there talking from Pakistan, uh, uh, colleagues and clients in New York, and everybody sharing ideas about how we deal with, you know, this climate emergency and how we can provide affordable homes for people in very vulnerable flood situations. So technology, I think, has enabled us to understand the urgency and to share, share some very compelling ideas. Yeah. And, you know, yesterday there was some wonderful, a company called uh, Mighty, Mighty Build in California who are, have now got this fantastic 3D printed buildings. And that will soon enable people in even the remotest areas to have uh, warm, modern, prefabricated buildings without necessarily needing to have the skill set to deliver it. So. Our built environment will change. I think we just need to ask the right questions and empower our politicians to create the opportunities to be able to deliver this type of infrastructure and buildings. Yeah. And to that point, what do you think is needed to not just get the conversation going, but to legitimize more and more and more that this is a good solution to certain pressing problems that we have? Is it political capital? Is it financial resources? More case studies that showcase what? Well, I well, one of the things which was said in this its debate at, at the UN yesterday was that a lot of architects, designers, contractors find building codes and building regulations, all the changes to them, yeah. incredibly slow. I think one of the quotes, let me just check my notes here, was, was that it was enshrined in blood mm. or let me just find the right phrase because it's it's just bear with me oh yeah no the building codes are written in blood yeah and so you yeah. know if you look at if you look at the tech world they have gone back to first principles and have put their products out there or their social media without any government intervention and almost it's like governments are trying now to regulate that in reverse yes whereas the built environment is born out of 20th century thinking oh, yes. so those rules regulations are incredibly cumbersome yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And so, for example, when we wanted to build the amphibious house and, and also like the gentleman that was talking about 3D printing, we were constrained to part innovating, but most of it reusing conventional materials, be it from bridge building technology or the marine environments and repurposing them. Whereas the best solutions would be to, to develop a piece of engineering design fit for purpose. Yeah. But there's but there's no building codes to set to regulate it. Yes. <laughs> so then you so then you can't get insurance. Yes, ex- yeah. Uh-huh. Or a mortgage. So so we presented yesterday the notion of, of something called an innovation license. Oh. So the innovation license would allow the built environmental professionals to make a big step forward. So if essentially it encourages the private sector to invest in their built environment and and their employees who live and work in their properties. And so, for example, say uh, you you took like a big, big employer. It could be a car manufacturer. So you could assume that also that they provide housing for their employers or employees, I should say. So they would then pitch to the government to say, look, we'd like to do this to net zero carbon. But some of the regulations are, are tricky to get around. So we want to go back to first principles and we'd like to develop this. So they put a proposition together to the local planning authority or, or, or the local governing body for a, a, a special permit, a license. Mm-hmm. And they, they lay claim to what this would achieve. So as I say, we mentioned zero carbon. It could be cleaner air. It could be a COVID pandemic proof school. And then the local authority would would grant that business a permit, but also with that permit, they get tax breaks. So, you know, they they, rather than paying, you know, contribution to a school or a new road, that money can go in the product development, whether it's prefabrication within that idea, that development. So they get this this license and it's, it's, it's independently audited as well from another institution. So everybody says, yes, in principle, this works. So then they get their, their passport to, li- uh, to license so that they, they get to build. So over the next couple of years, they do the drawings, they do the build. And at the end of that process, there's, there's an audit. So has your product or idea or building lived up to that performance criteria that you set out? And if it does, they get to keep the benefits of the tax breaks. Oh, cool. And then from a governance perspective, you then have to set out, well, what were the obstacles for delivery? So you go, well, this policy would have been, you know, if we'd have followed this to the letter, we couldn't have done that. So then the government has the chance to then go, okay, we have a benchmark building now. If we change this regulation, we can enable more buildings. But equally, you've got a case study that people can refer to. So in the round... You know, say say 10, 10 licenses are granted per city. Well, you could probably assume that two or three will fail, but several of these will succeed, or at the very least, we will learn lessons yeah. from them. So that 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 could work really well. And then in, in the event that they fail, you say, well, either you have a choice of, of paying back the tax breaks or you make retrospective changes to your building to bring it back to code level. Okay. So there's all, it's it's effectively, it's a framework for really pushing forward development. But you can imagine, you know, the likes of a a Google building a new campus 
or you know a car manufacturer building you know a floating factory yeah. or or building you know a large block of affordable homes which could start off as student accommodation for an olympics which is then repurposed to become affordable homes somewhere else all these different opportunities which under normal circumstances would be very challenging to build and it would just accelerate change so within the next five to ten years you could have some very transformative developments but you know unless we do that you know these could be 30 40 50 years away yes yeah it's it's telling it always comes down to regulations people really think uh, floating or amphibious it's only just about the engineering the the architecture the design but the legal and the technical go like this because i'm sure you've also encountered that and talking uh, touching on, on the point of in, getting insurance if you have a floating home in a place that doesn't have regulations for floating home only has immobile property and boats then they have the floating home is in an in-between space and then yeah so it always comes down to regulation and i i really like that idea i think it incentivizes private companies to innovate with new regulations by pushing what already exists and by getting tax advantages i think it takes the three things yeah i love it and i'm sure and the sustainability so it just sustainability taxes new regulations and innovation but i think that's the four things we need no to to make the world well, more but to make the world at least a bit better i like that thank yeah, you I love okay well richard thank you so much for talking to me this time And it's been, I've learned a lot. It's been very interesting. And I'm sure our listening listeners and viewers also find it very interesting. So thank you. Thank you for having me.